Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I just spoke with Katie Price about her really wonderful new book, Loving Faster Than Light, Romance and Readers in Einstein's Universe, that was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that is really rich in a number of different ways. Not only is Katie bringing together in this book a range of kinds of documents and kinds of texts that are all emerging out of the context of a kind of public engagement with ideas about Einsteinian relativity in Britain in the 1920s and 1930s, but she's also bringing to those texts and to those documents a set of analytic tools and a set of methodologies and ways of reading that are informed by both historical and literary ways of engaging with science and engaging with texts. So the result is not just a series of case studies that are all really fascinating in their own extent and that cover newspapers, popular magazines, popular fiction, other kinds of um, fictional accounts, poems. But she's also weaving them together very coherently with arguments that inform both fields that she's talking to, and at least those two fields, if not more. As a reader, I came away from this not only really fascinated because I learned a ton about not just ways of thinking about the history of science, but also ways of reading documents that come out of the context of the history of science from this text. But also I came away from this wanting to go and read a ton more about all of the characters that emerge in this book because they're so fascinating. Um, and it, it, it just, it's a lot of fun also. So there's also for lovers of science fiction um, or sort of the dimensions of science fiction, pun kind of intended there, there's also a ton of descriptions of really wonderfully um, funny and interesting stories that come out of the early 20th century engagement with Einsteinian relativity that you might want to go and um, read the entirety of after reading this book because it's really, really fun in that way. So it was really a pleasure talking with Katie Price about the book, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Katie Price about her new book, Loving Faster Than Light, Romance and Readers in Einstein's Universe. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Katie, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me. So Katie, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background and yourself? What brought you to the field of the kind of historical and literary study of the sciences? Um, Well, I got into it through poetry. I was um, really against studying science in any way because my uh, parents were medical and uh, scientific. So I was uh, firmly convinced that I wanted to study poetry. Um, And I was in my third year of my undergraduate studies. I was doing a free arts program at the University of Manchester. And I decided I was going to write my English dissertation on the poems of William Empson. Um, And I hadn't read his poems. I just thought that he would be an interesting person. Um, So I filled in my form to do my topic. And um, I think there was a raised eyebrow from my tutor who said, these poems are a little difficult. Um, But I, I, I then read the poems and couldn't understand them at all. Um, and I realised that they'd been inspired by popular astronomy books, many of the poems. So I thought, okay, well, I'll read the, the astronomy books and see if that helps. And um, I was hooked from that point, really, um, reading Arthur Eddington's popular books. Um, they were so so much fun, such good storytelling. Um, so I was lured into science that way. That's totally fascinating. So you're your interest in this field didn't actually come from a sort of inherent um, interest in wanting to study the the history and philosophy and literature of science. It came through poetry. Yeah. Fantastic. So 
I was going to ask you how you came to this topic in particular, and you, you just started to get at that, actually. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Empson's poems and Empson as a figure in Eddington as well uh, when we get later on in the conversation and when we start talking about the later chapters of the book for listeners who may not be familiar with their work. But this is part of, actually, a larger project in the book um, where you're looking at the what we might call, and I'm going to put the this word in air quotes right now because uh, we'll talk about the kind of complexities of this concept and this word in a little bit, but perhaps popular, so air quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, reception of and engagement with the, the theories and the ideas of Einstein in this context. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to framing the project in that way? So to rather than um, or moving from popular astronomical works to looking more expansively at the reception of this particular set of ideas in this, at this particular time? Um, well, what happened was um, I was presenting my work on Empson in uh, history of science conferences, but my work at this stage was very much um, within the close reading school of literary criticism. Um, and so it was odd that I was there at a History of Science conference, but they were very welcoming people. And then they, they said to me, um, where's the context? Um, and so I thought, oh, I'd better go away and explore the context um, so that I can carry on hanging out with these wonderful historians of science who are so much fun. And um, so I spent... Um, at least a year in microfilm reading rooms, reading through newspaper reports um, of the key ideas that were in Emerson's poems. So he was talking about curved space-time and um, about what happened in Einstein's universe um, to to space travellers. He was using these ideas in his poems. So I thought, okay, I have to look at what happened um, when these ideas first reached a, a broad audience. So I went and I looked at newspaper coverage from 1919 when Einstein's theory of relativity was first presented to the public. Excellent. So this was so this actually um, transformed into a project that wound up covering not just newspapers, but a vast array, a really wonderfully focused but wonderfully diverse array of different kinds of texts, different um, sort of ways of structuring argument, different kinds of materials, and we'll get to that in a moment as well. So this is your first book, is that right? Yes. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about the process of moving from dissertation work to the book itself. Were there any um, major transformations, any points that were particularly gratifying or particularly um, difficult or, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Can you talk a little bit about that? that what was that process like for you? Yeah, well, it's taken a long time. I, it's taken um, about 12 years. Um, and as I mentioned, I was um, practicing uh, close literary analysis um, and in my PhD, and um, it was after the PhD that I began engaging with the history of science and realizing that there was a whole world around the text, um, uh, and um, all, you know a lot of different approaches within the history of science. Um, so I didn't publish my thesis; I abandoned my thesis <laughs> quite happily, um, but I stayed with the figure of Empson and also the figure of Arthur Eddington, the, the astronomer who wrote popular works. Um, so it was, it was after the PhD that I started encountering these other genres and talking to people who were working on, on the popularization of science, um, and thinking about ways to, um, connect that with the literary texts. Um, so looking at popular science texts as if, as if they were literature, but also trying to go, um, beyond that a little bit and see how there were maybe shared problems that literary people interested in science and um, scientific people who were interested in, in reaching broader audiences, were they working on any shared problems? So that was what I was trying to explore by skipping from one genre to the next as I went chapter by chapter through the book. So I, I really um, went away, moved away from um, my literary uh, focus and um, to explore these other genres and then try to to sew them together into some kind of story so that's that was 
the transformation really it was, was just to leave the thesis where it belonged in a drawer uh, and, uh, and bring a wider world in. Yeah, it's, it's so great, though, because although you're saying that you abandoned the kind of literary analysis, that sensitivity to the texture of, of rhetoric and that's, that sensitivity to the texture of argument and to ways of reading, re- really line by line and word by word, different kinds of documents and different kinds of text to tell larger stories and to draw those connections that you're talking about is very much still in the book and, and is really, I think, a fantastic addition to what would otherwise perhaps in, in another scholars and, you know, hands who, with a different kind of training, what would be a very different kind of a story. And so actually, um, congratulations on that, because one of the really wonderful things for a reader about the book is this way that you've managed to really not just write a story here that's interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary, but that takes the kind of methodological and conceptual and analytical resources from both of those fields and creates a a kind of sort of third meta field that informs both of them. And so... Oh, well, thank you. And of course, it's not true to say that I abandoned literary techniques because... um, the presiding spirit of the whole study is this poet and critic, William Empson, um, who he not only wrote astonishing um, poems with really complex ast- astronomical ideas in them, but he, he also developed um, methods of literary criticism that were very much focused intensely on textual details and their possibilities. And so I, I've always been inspired from, you know, from quite an early stage from from when I was 16, I've been completely inspired by his approach to text. And he's very much um, the, the guiding spirit in the background of the whole study, even when I'm analyzing the newspapers. Now, the book, oh, so to get to Emson, we have to start at the beginning. So let's yeah. <laughs> start at the beginning. So the book itself opens in the introduction with a revolution in science. And that's, um, that's a quote from the book that was reported by newspapers in Britain on November 7th, 1919. And this revolution in science was occasioned by the emergence of the theories of Einstein and Einsteinian relativity. And this is something that then gets elaborated in the book, especially in the periods from kind of the 1920s to the 1930s. Now you note here in the course of the, the chapters, in the course of the book, an important transformation. So you're showing here that there's actually a change through the 1920s and 1930s from initially a kind of frustration in the public engagement with um, Einstein's theories of relativity with the difficulty of the theory in the 1920s. And this changes uh, later on in the 1930s to an attitude of more kind of openness, more sort of astronomically informed speculation about the cosmos as a kind of fun, popular pastime. So there's really a transformation here, and the book is going to go on to show different moments in this transformation that are embodied in different genres of literature. But as we'll see over the course of the book, these are not separate um, worlds of discourse. These are worlds of discourse that are very much informed, um, not just by each other, but also by common analytic threads that you are drawing throughout the book, throughout these and across these different genres. So um, one of the things that I want to um, start off by asking you about is just this um, this diversity of genres that you are bringing to bear in this project from the perspective of the historian's craft um, or the, the sort of the craft of what it is to work with these different documents. So the book covers a, just, like I said, a wide range from newspapers, popular fiction of various sorts, poems, magazines, and other kinds of documents. How, as an author sort of working on this project, did you manage to work across all these genres? Were there any um, particular uh, challenges that you can sort of remember or identify in the process of trying to work across these genres? Or did you feel that um, you came to this with, you know, sort of feeling perfectly prepared to, to move with fluidity across these? So what was, essentially the question is, what was the process of working across these different kinds of documents like for you? And did your attitude toward this change at all in the course of working on this project? That's a really interesting question. I love <clears throat> talking about process, actually. Um, 
I think it took me a long time, as I mentioned before, because I had to really absorb myself not only in each genre, but and also in um, the the communities who study those genres. Um, so I spent time building networks and talking to astronomers, and I had some wonderfully warm, if sometimes slightly perplexed, responses from. Um, the British astronomical community, I set up a conference on Arthur Eddington and I invited them to come along and engage with um, philosophers and literary critics. And um, they were incredibly generous. I mean, everyone who, who I've engaged with through this study has been really tolerant and generous of my odd approaches. Um, and so I spent time having conversations with people who inhabited these different genres. And I, I've also um, engaged with people who um, work in the present with media science by working with the British Science Festival. So that gave me some perspectives on, on working with newspapers as well as, um, you know, um, listening to what people were saying about, about the media at, at popular science conferences. So it's all been about... Um, meeting people, not just um, sitting in archives, going through these texts, but also um, presenting my work in different contexts um, and having ongoing conversations with people who, who inhabit the realm of popular science, who inhabit media science, who, who inhabit literature, poetry um, and popular fiction. Um, I guess the chapter where I, I had less contact with, with communities of scholars was chapter three, um, where I look at pulp fiction magazines. Um, I, I didn't have an established network. Um, so I, I'm starting to get area now, but I was more on my own with that chapter, but I didn't feel alone because I loved the characters in the stories and, and the energy that the authors of Pulp Fiction were bringing. So um, although I was in the Bodleian on my own for much of that chapter, um, I, it was tremendous fun to work on that material. And it reads that way as well. So, um, so it's clear that that was a fun chapter to work on from the perspective of a reader. Now, one of the things that you, or one of the terms that you just mentioned in describing the kinds of communities that you engage with was um, the term sort of popular culture. Or, and I'll focus on the popular part of this. Now, this, um, even though the chapters in the book all look at different uh, different people, different genres of reading. There are threads that weave them all together into the same story. And one of those threads is the idea of, um, or that the sort of complex and perhaps problematic, um, in some ways, idea of the popular. Now, right. you articulate, and, and this is um, this is something also I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, because at the beginning of the book, you're very careful to articulate an approach toward what we could think of as popular culture that's very nuanced. You, you are very careful to say here that you're not sort of taking for granted the category of the popular, but rather using it to show the ways that it's always um, conceived and articulated in attention, in attention with elite culture. So yes. can you, um, there's a, a, a number of things we can talk about that are related to this as we get into the book, but can you start us off by saying a little bit about that category of the popular? Um, how, um, how important is that for you in thinking through these ideas? And can you talk about the kind of ways that you want to kind of complexify or complicate that notion for us in the book? Well, there have been some suggestions from scholars in the history of science communication that we don't use the term popular science anymore um, because um, it's such a problematic category because it assumes, for example, um, that there's a sharp division between proper science and popular science um, and that therefore popular science is a parasitic activity, it's a secondary activity. Um, and for many reasons, um, people want to avoid those kind of connotations because um, the activity of engaging wider audiences with science or of science coming from those wider audiences is really complex and it's a contribution to knowledge in its own right. Um, so that's just one of the reasons why people suggest that we don't use the term. And after some humming and hawing, I decided to, to retain the term popular science, partly because I'm working on the 1920s and because the term is valid and current for that period. Um, and because of the point that you've just made, that um, the popular is always in some kind of conversation or 
our tension with notions of an elite. Um, so I decided to keep the term popular science because it was the term on everybody's minds and it was the term that all the, the, the people, it was being explicitly mobilized in problematic ways in all the different genres that I was looking at. So um, when Einstein's theory first came out, um, one of the liberal newspapers um, said, oh, well, surely the, the death knell of popular science is sounding now because um, so that they were referring to the idea that through the 19th century, there'd been lots of um, ways of bringing um, uh, science into contact with, with people's lives. Um, but, but, but with Einstein's theory, that was just the end, really, that science had disappeared into its specialised realm. So because science was becoming increasingly specialised, increasingly hard to understand, even from one branch of science to another, um, there, were, there were lots of concerns about the end of popular science. Um, that very 19th century phenomenon was drawing to a close now that we'd moved into a new century. So people were, were explicitly confronting the term popular in, in their own way then, just as we are now in, in a historiographical way. Um, so that's why I decided to keep it, um, but to make it a prickly term all the way through the book. Now, one of the categories that you bring to bear in sort of giving some texture to this category of the popular is the notion of mathematical innocence. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about that and the importance of this notion of mathematical innocence to the way you're thinking about the what we might think of, of as a popular field um, in the context of the 1920s and 1930s in Britain? Yeah, well, I came up with that term because I wanted to have a different um, term rather than saying lay readers or lay audiences, because that's the term that um, that's often available for use. We have a contrast between um, the scientific specialist or the scientifically literate person um, and the non-specialist or the lay audience. Um, and I wasn't really happy with non-specialists, partly because it's a negative term, but also because um, it had become really clear to me that the people who were engaging from outside science were specialists themselves in their own domains. So the journalists were specialists in um, being able to sell newspapers and create attention-grabbing headlines and twist science in with politics. Um, and poets were specialists in um, bringing surprising or opposite things together and so on. Um, so they were specialists. I couldn't bring myself to call them non-specialists. And I didn't want to call them a lay audience because I felt that that was importing um, a sleeping um, and quite sleepy by now religious metaphor um, that would carry its own um, interpretation um, that I didn't want imported in an automatic way. Well, okay, how can I describe these people? The thing that really distinguishes them from people who are working with... Uh, theories of space and time is that they they're not um able to um use the specialist calculus that's involved in working with with relativity um so i decided that they were mathematically innocent but they were innocent to varying degrees so um william empson um he had a mathematics degree um but he still he's still innocent of the um, specific calculus that was formed. So he, but he was less innocent than um, maybe a reader of a pulp fiction magazine who would have a, a higher degree of mathematical innocence. Now, you just mentioned the term relativity, and one of the really interesting things um, that's happening in the book as well is that the concept of relativity is taken up, it's adopted and it's adapted into very different contexts and used in very different ways. And in fact, you refer to this process by which relativity starts to circulate as a kind of commodification. So you say relativity was actually commodified, it became a commodity alongside others of its day. Can you say a little bit about that? And can you speak to the idea here of relativity as a commodity in this context? Yes, I think relativity was presented to people in a, an advertising 
laden context. Um, so they were they were reading about it alongside um, fashion advertisements um, and alongside adverts that would improve them. So adverts, you too could become a writer. Um, you too could increase your worth. Very explicit adverts about how readers of popular magazines could increase their value in the marketplace. Um, and so... I wanted to suggest that relativity was was a fashionable thing that you could talk about. It was a commodity that you could incorporate into your conversation. Um, But quite often, it was a commodity that could explode in your mouth because um, of all the... um, the problems that came with talking about relativity, if, if you started talking about it, you would immediately be setting up barriers between yourself and other people, or you might get yourself into trouble by not being able to finish your sentence and be able to explain what it was really about. Or you might end up getting drawn into a conversation about the fourth dimension and all kinds of mystical things. Um, so it was a dangerous commodity for people to, to talk about, but it was also an irresistible one. Um, um, because it was so versatile, I think um, bec- one of the wonderful things about relativity is that it was so difficult that nobody could actually explain it, which meant that um, it wasn't really tied down to any particular interpretation and anybody could do what they wanted with it. So in a way, it's the dream commodity because it can be used um, for any any purpose that the person using it would like. And one of the really interesting things that later chapters of the book uh, do is exactly to look at the kind of the ways that advertisements specifically on the same pages or in the same publications and perhaps being looked at at the same time that readers were looking at uh, articles about relativity, how that process of sort of visually and conceptually juxtaposing advertisements with work on relativity really changed or rather shaped the way readers were experiencing and taking up and understanding relativity as a concept. So there's this really wonderful um, way that juxtaposition in this way explicitly with advertisements creates knowledge in a way that you're showing very concretely in the pages, certainly of the the magazines especially. So that was really interesting. So as we get into um, to the, the sort of body chapters of the book itself, we start looking in turn at these different genres that we've been alluding to in the course of our early conversation. The first chapter looks at newspapers in particular. This introduces what you call the, Einstein, the Einsteinian sensation by looking at two intense periods of news coverage. First, coverage around the announcement of the eclipse observations in November 1919, and then also coverage around Einstein's visit to Britain in June 1921. Now, this chapter analyzes this coverage in a series of daily newspapers and weekly newspapers. So the dailies include the Daily Mail, the Times, the Daily Express, the Daily News, and the weeklies include three very different kinds of weekly newspapers that are doing different kinds of work. The kind of satirical punch, the populist titbits, and the socialist time and tide. Okay. So one of the things, uh, so before we get into kind of differences in um, how these publications are treating uh, this issue, this is all happening in and is being informed by and is in turn informing developments in the contemporary political history of Britain in the Mm. early 20th century. So you're showing here how the kind of revolution in science um, that Einsteinian relativity is, uh, is functioning as really also went along with a revolution in politics. So can you say a little bit about, and you know, you don't have to go into too much detail, but (laughs) what was for someone who may not know anything about what's happening right now in contemporary British politics or right now, meaning 1920s um, (laughs) in British politics that may have been shaping the way readers were taking up the discourse of relativity, um, what was happening in the political climate of the time that was um, shaping and being shaped by what's happening in these newspapers? Well, um, what had happened in the 19th century was that the, um, the British government had flipped back and forth between the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. Um, and 
um, they had a coalition between the, the Liberals and the Conservatives, um, which oddly enough has happened since, since I finished the book. We've had that again um, for the first time. Um, but this coalition was in trouble um, following the First World War. It was in trouble during the First World War. Um, and um, the Liberal Party was really losing um, decline. It was in decline. It was um, um, losing um, the faith of the people. Um, and it was just declining as an electable party. So after this coalition um, dissolved, the Liberal Party never never again came into power in Britain. Um, they are in power as part of a coalition now, but never again um, were they that old Liberal Party of the 19th century. Um, so, um, And the other thing that was happening at the same time is that the Labour Party um, was starting to become a, an electable force. Um, so there was this shift from the liberal conservative back and forth um, into what, what's been more familiar through the 20th century, which was a, a Labour conservative shift back and forth. Um, and so, but this was happening at the same time as revolution um, in Europe. So the, the Bolshevik uprising in Russia during the First World War. Um, and obviously this was being covered in, in the British newspapers and in the press worldwide. So the combination of a shift um, from away from the Liberals and towards Labour in Britain and the um, revolutions um, in, in other countries uh, made people very worried. Um, they really genuinely thought that Britain was going to be overtaken by communists um, and that there would be a revolution um, in, in Britain. And they they were genuinely um, worried that this that this was a very real prospect. And at the same time, um, they have a revolution in science. So it was immediately... Um, there was no hope for science to be kept out of politics or to be kept in um, disgust. Um, separately from politics, it was that could never have happened because purely because of the timing. Um, and then um, there's also been quite a lot of discussion among historians of the naming of Einstein's theory and how it was how unfortunate that it was called the the theory of relativity because um, relativity had quite radical associations in the 19th century as as an alternative to absolutes. Um, and so it was very much already entwined in a discussion of values um, and, and um, progressive change. So um, they, people have said, well, Einstein's theory really should have been being called the theory of invariance, which would have been much more boring and kept it nice and safe um, from getting entwined with, with politics. But I don't know, to be honest, if that change of name would have helped really. Well, one of the thank you so much. So now that we the stage is set, one of the things that this chapter uh, does really, really interestingly and is, makes a very compelling case for is to show how these different newspapers that you're looking at had different agendas and different kinds of audiences and different sort of um, different things that they were trying to do, both politically but also editorially. And they consequently, the editors and the writers of these pieces and of these newspapers used relativity and covered relativity in different ways to support these very different kinds of agendas and kinds of goals and to consolidate also their relationships with their readers and their different communities of readers. One of the other things that um, is really interesting about this story that you're telling in this chapter, though, is that it wasn't just um, editors and uh, writers who were doing this, but it was also scientists who were using the press in turn, right, yes. to support their views. And this um, this is something I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about because this gets us to another concept that's really vital throughout all of the chapters, even though it emerges sort of early on here, and that's the notion of enrollment. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit here about um, sort of really the ways that scientists are trying to use the press um, for support, but uh, as a way to talk more broadly about this idea of enrollment? What is enrollment and in what ways is that crucial for the work that you're doing in the book? Well, um, scientists um, during the during the 19th century, especially in the second half of the 19th century, had had to make increasing use of the press and become increasingly adept at PR um, because they needed public money to support the science they were doing. Um, it, 
science was becoming a profession um, rather than a gentlemanly pursuit. Um, and that transformation um, happened in the early 19th century, but it was an ongoing transformation, an ongoing shift. Um, so it was really important for um, scientists to impress the public. And the main instrument of doing that, um, aside from, from giving talks, um, was through the newspapers. So just as politicians needed the newspapers on their side, scientists also needed that in order to, to justify um, and command uh, public funding. Um, so um, the concept, the, this idea of enrolment, I've taken from um, two scholars who called um, uh Roger Cooter and Stephen Pumphrey, who they developed this idea in the context of science communication, um, where they talk about um, this concept of mutual enrollment. So when a scientist makes an appeal to the public, um, they enroll the public in their own aims. So the aim might be for them to have a public profile for science and public support. The public becomes part of, of um, they become, become enlisted in that endeavour to, to gain support for science. Um, but they also suggest that enrolment can work the other way, um, in, in which case the scientist becomes enrolled in what the public wants. So they might have to be a bit of a compromise in that mutual enrolment. Um, and what, what I found, I thought, OK, I'll, this sounds like a really interesting model for public engagement of science. Um, I'm going to test out this model by looking at the case study of relativity in Britain and I'll see where it breaks because every model has a breaking point. Um, that's the difference between a model and, and the messy business of real life. Um, and I found that um, what happened was that um, scientists would, would enrol the public, but then the scientists would get enrolled in in other things that they hadn't wanted maybe to be to be involved with. So they would that science became an instrument of media promotion, and I'm sure that that wasn't the a, original aim of the scientists. They wanted to get the public to support them, um, and so they so they had to cater to public interests. But science became a method. By, by covering science, the newspapers could promote themselves as newspapers. So the Daily Mail could do Daily Mailish things with relativity. Um, so my favourite headline in the whole chapter is light court bending. <laughs> it's such a Daily Mail headline. Um, and um, so every newspaper used relativity as a way of saying to its readers, look, this is what we do with science. This is, this is what we're doing with the latest science story. And this is what we offer to you as our readers. The times, the real virtue of the times that it promoted to its readers was that, was that you didn't need anything except the times because we will show you everything, every angle on, on the subject. We will talk all around the subject so you're informed with a broad scope of opinion and you'll be able to make your own mind up. So the times um, had a real bonanza with relativity and they had the most inconceivable range um, of content on the theme of relativity. And so each newspaper performs their own... Um, relationship with the public their own promise to the public by how they covered relativity and i don't think that's a new thing i think um particularly um jim secord has shown in his research that um what it meant to be a scientist and what it meant to be a newspaper were they were almost um twins that grew up together from the early 19th century onwards they shaped each other so um i haven't i'm not saying that this is something new that happened with relativity but it was um very much um, in action. And it meant that there were lots of surprises in store. Scientists couldn't really control um, how the newspapers were going to use relativity. And then that set up the problems that then were then encountered when people wanted to popularise relativity in the 20s. They had to unpick this um, media image of relativity or media images that had been created. Now, the, the next chapter is something that I'll, I'll mention, but not ask you too much about so that we can move on to the romance um, and, the, <laughs> and the work of um, uh, Eddington, etc. after that. But I'll just mention for listeners that the next chapter moves this investigation into the realm of popular science magazines and looks both at a series of monthly magazines and also um, other kinds of magazines that represented very different kinds of concerns uh, with class 
class, with labor politics, and you look at the ways that enrollment did or didn't happen and that uh, and how relativity functions and is treated and emerges as a sort of point of reference in these very different kinds of genres than the newspapers, even though we might typically think of newspapers and magazines in the same mental breath, um, it's actually the story becomes quite different from what we see in the first chapter. But what I want to ask you about or sort of bring us to is um, more and more as we get into creative fiction. Mm. And the third chapter looks at space and time and pulp, pulp fiction and looks at Einstein-themed stories in pulp fiction magazines. Now, can you, um, can you talk a little bit about the ways that Einstein-themed stories emerge in this genre? And this is a chapter in which you talk about the importance of kind of romance plots in engaging themes of relativity. So how did that work and, and what, how did um, sort of Einsteinian relativity emerge in this genre as an important way of telling a romance? Oh, the there are two two types of stories that I found. One was the adventure stories where people would fall through a crack in space and time. Um, they'd undergo some kind of bewildering transition. Um, so those are the adventure stories, um, and they appeared um, quite quick off the mark, quite quickly off the mark in the early 1920s. Um, the romance stories that I found come a little bit later in the mid 1920s. Um, so. Um, I guess it depends whether you're considering the adventures as also romances. Sure, either one. <laughs> so either it would actually be great to hear about either one of those types of stories as as um, they engaged Einsteinian themes, whatever type that you're actually most uh, excited about. Well, what I was delighted to find in these stories was that they were laying claim to um, the new space and time on the behalf um, of mathematically innocent readers. So what had happened um, in the newspapers and in the popular magazines was there'd been quite a lot of tension because the um, scientific authorities had said, this theory is too difficult for you. and We can't give you access to Einstein's universe. I'm sorry, but you, if you want to join in, you're going to have to um, obtain very high level mathematical training so goodbye and obviously people weren't satisfied with that and they said no um, you, you've got to give us access or we'll, we'll devise access on our own terms which is a horrific prospect to, to scientific authorities because they didn't want people to make up their own version of science um, and so there was a bit of an impasse that developed through the early 1920s and the, the impasse wasn't, could not be so resolved in popular science magazines because they had a strict, a fairly strict remit to actually depict science um, in accordance with what scientists thought. Um, so it did the, the, the freeing up of relativity came in these pulp fiction magazines where the remit's very different and the, um, the only rules that the author has to abide by are the conventions of a story. So if there's an adventure story, um, then people have to um, step out of ordinary life and make some kind of exciting discovery and either come home safe or not. And, and in romance plots, people have to triumph, um, love has to triumph over um, adversity. Um, so with these rules in mind, um, it became possible um, to give people ownership or access to the new space and time. Um, and what I discovered, what I was really interested to find, um, was that um, these authors showed that people who had no mathematical training could access um, the fourth dimension. They could travel in time um, and they could be translated um, across space in Einsteinian ways. And they could do this because they lived in a world that was constantly disrupted um, in time and space because of the media that they were experiencing, the new media. So the wireless was a relatively recent technology that had begun to um, crop up in people's homes. And the cinema was another new media technology that they had experience of. And through the cinema and the wireless, people um, already had contact with distant spaces and um, with the past and also possibly with the future. And the other way in which people could travel in space and time was in their imagination. So the characters in these stories are um, credited with knowledge of media technology and with 
um, a very powerful imagination that innate, that renders them susceptible to being translated in space and time and having these adventures. Um, so, um, in re- in reply to the to the claim that you can't you can't have access to this esoteric science, they said, "Well, I'm sorry, we already do, and this is what happens to us. Um, we already have." have this experience and it's a very hands-on concrete experience in our daily life um so you have advertising executives who fall through trick advertisements in brick walls and end up in um savage london being chased by saber-toothed tigers um you have um business representatives who um who pick up strange looking watches and end up um getting um, the financial news from the future and being able to make lots of money on that knowledge. Um, and then, but then with the romance plots, um, there was a sense that people having this ability to zoom around in space and time was possibly a dangerous thing. And I think this comes back to the association of rel- rev- relativity with revolution. Um, people um, could be given access on their own terms, but you you had to kind of you had to close that down in a way uh, because otherwise they might be getting too revolutionary ideas and t- uh, too much opinion of their, of their knowledge. Um, so it's, but it's in the romance plots that um, this, this shutting down really happens and astronomy is prevent, presented as a dangerous thing and characters who are too obsessed with space and time are not able to maintain healthy relationships and get married and have children. Um, and so the astronomy interests have to be over... They are the love obstacle that has to be overcome in order for, for people to find love um, and get on with their lives. It's, it's such great material. It's such a great chapter. So from this chapter, we move to the second part of the book. And the second part of the book features chapters that each look at, um, rather than looking in particular at a specific genre of work, they look at the work of a particular figure or figures that were crucial to the development of this wider engagement with Einsteinian theories and with relativity in particular in this context. Now, the next chapter brings us to one of the figures that has already come up in the course of our early conversation, and he's absolutely crucial to this story. And this is Arthur Stanley Eddington. Now, this is one of the really interesting things that comes out of this chapter is that he's a practicing Quaker. And this the, the kinds of political and social uh, commitments that come out of that set of practices actually inform the way he interprets and the way he engages with Einstein's idea of relativity. So can you talk a little bit about that? How does relativity offer him a chance to engage his political and social ideas through um, this set of mathematical concepts? Well, I couldn't have written this chapter without um, the book by Matthew Stanley called Practical Mystic, in which he in a very detailed way, explores how Eddington's spiritual, religious values and his scientific values completely intersected. Um, so for him, there was being a Quaker and being an astronomer were part of the same endeavour of seeking, which is a quick Quaker term for the way that you come to understand the world and your relationship to it. Um, so I decided that I would take this knowledge that, that Matthew Stanley had produced about Eddington and I would apply it to his popular writings. So I would show how his values as an internationalist informed the texture of his writing. So um, in relativity theory, there's there's this thing called frames of reference. So we're one frame of reference on the earth, but somebody on the sun would be in a different frame of reference and we would measure events um, and, and time them in different ways because we're in different frames of reference. And so Eddington would create conflicts between frames of reference and he would have characters on the sun and characters on the earth disagreeing. And he would use his um, Quaker values to negotiate an understanding between those two perspectives. Um, and so all the way through his popular accounts, there are these disagreements and disputes and he resolves them, but he... He brings, he uses narrative tension, he uses the techniques of popular fiction to create disagreements and bring them to life so that as readers we're invested in him finding a solution. So that's a very subtle way in which his, his Quaker values um, caused him to, to borrow very popular techniques to create narrative tension and then resolve it in ways that um, accorded with his own interpretation of relativity theory. Now, the the, um, materials that you used um, 
included in this chapter, not just Eddington's published work, but his unpublished letters and his journal entries. So what kind of perspective or what kind of entry into this set of problems did using those particular kinds of materials give you that, and, and how did that story engage with what you would have seen in the published materials? Well, Eddington was a very private person. Um, so there are some quite significant limits on what we can know about him and, and how we can um, find out about the, the inner life that, that he led. Um, but um, what I wanted to do was to show that um, Eddington was experiencing everyday life um, in ways that were comparable to those of his audience. So he was, for example, um, sugar and butter and things like that were rationed after the war had ended. Um, but when he went on his astronomical expeditions, he was treated to um, overflowing sugar bowls on board the ship. And um, this image really stuck with me because um, I realised that um, as a scientist, he was not only moving um, between worlds of the popular and the spiritual and the scientific, but he was also literally on the move as he went on his scientific expeditions. Um, so this is just another side to his ability to um, to speak across the divisions of experience and to be aware of those divisions. Um, and I wanted the the physical body of Eddington to be um, have have a presence in the story um, and to show how he was very sympathetic and alive to the physical conditions that his readers were um, were living in. Great. Now, as we come to the, the end of the book or the last part of the book, we won't have time to talk about all of the wonderful things that are happening in chapters five and six, um, especially, but I, I want to just kind of signal and ask you about one of the things that's happening in chapter five. This is a chapter that's focused on the work of Dorothy Sayers. And you're showing in here that her engagement with popular physics is part of a series of larger arguments that she's making or sort of larger issues she's dealing with that have to do with uh, kind of masculine and experience in the post-war. So post-war male disorientation, I think um, you term it. And she's engaging popular physics as a way of engaging issues of marriage and relationships and, and the sort of the masculine in this context. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because that might be a kind of surprising connection for readers to find in a book on um, Einsteinian relativity. So how is, um, in what ways is that important to the larger story that you're telling? Well, surprise to me as well, but um, Sayers was a big fan of Arthur Eddington and she she's wrote to her son and, and said that she um, really valued the way that he enlarges and disorientates the mind. Um, and but in Sayers' books, um, she uses popular physics as an obstacle to marriage. So to, in keeping with the popular fiction stories, she has these bachelors who are obsessed with time and space and who... Um, I've been reading Eddington and who, who are inhabiting um, this um, Einsteinian world. Um, but it's causing them to lose touch with practicalities of life. Um, and so these characters have to be rescued from Einstein's universe and, um, and so that they can get married. This is always the, the goal at the end of the story. But it's for Sayers' the stories, the marriage is, is always something that's um, being delayed or deferred or not quite happening. Um, and so it fits in with the, with the popular fiction stories in, in that relativity is um, an exciting new development, but it also it's somehow dangerous um, and it can cause people to, um, if they get too absorbed in the new cosmology, um, they might lose touch with terrestrial practical realities. Now, in the we come now to the last body chapter of the book, and this is although this is um, the last body chapter, you've mentioned earlier that it was this topic that actually spurred your interest in this set of issues and this range of questions in the first place. And this is the chapter on the poetic work of the astronomy love poems, which I love that phrase um, of William Empson. Now, Empson is well known for his work on the multiplicity of meanings of a word, and as you, I think, phrase it here, the creative power of contradiction, where you talk about his work on contradiction and on multiplicity of meanings. And listeners or readers may be familiar with him as the author of Seven Types of Ambiguity, um, or uh, and there's another 
book that I, we, we briefly talked about this before the interview, but that I had um, totally coincidentally seen earlier this week, which is his work on the structure of complex words, um, which uh, Stefan Collini is working on right now. Now, this is a, a chapter that looks at this wonderful set of engagements with popular science and with physics in particular and ideas of relativity in these love poems in a really detailed way. And so you're giving us a very textured reading of uh, the lines and sections of these poems as they emerge out of Emson's work. Can you talk a little bit about sort of why um, he's engaging these themes of relativity in this work. You, you mentioned a little bit in the chapter that he's inspired by the work of John Donne, who was himself inspired by the new philosophy of Copernican astronomy. But can you speak a little bit to the importance of astronomical themes and of relativity in Emson's poems and the significance of that for the larger argument that you're making in the book as a whole? Um, well, Emson really seized upon um, the new astronomy as a resource for exploring the, the gaps that appear between people who've been reading different kinds of things or the, the gaps that appear in unrequited love affairs with which he was very much preoccupied as an undergraduate, um, as many people are. Um, and I think that um, one of the ambitions one of the things he really admired in poetry is that um, how a poet can take a very personal experience and they can make it powerful and interesting to other people um, through poetry by using metaphors and analogies and conceits. So, okay, I'm having a terrible love affair, but no one that's not very interesting to anyone else. But if I use an astronomical metaphor, I can help myself through this difficult time by distancing myself from it, and I can also give my love affair, a cosmic significance that other people can participate in. So I think that's the general model that he's using. And so um, although his poems are far from popular because they're so very difficult, he's very much concerned with um, the ways in which popular science can have a use and have a life beyond science. One of the wonderful things, just to sort of put a, um, a final point on that chapter, as a reader who came into this knowing very little about Empson, he really emerges from that chapter as someone you'd really want to hang out with. You know, he's just sort of like, wish, you know, I wish that he was around for me to hang out with and have a conversation with. And so I think um, it's a mark of, I think, incredible success. Uh, for a writer when you can write a historical figure in that way and have him emerge out of the page and be somebody that readers are really going to want to spend more time with. So I think um, if this is this is probably going to be responsible for a lot of historians of science learning a whole lot more about Emson because he emerges as, as such a compelling figure in this book that you really want to go on and learn much more about and, and spend time with. So so thank you for that because you've really inspired me here to to go and read a lot more about him. He seems just like a super cool Super cool guy. Okay, so um, we are sort of at the point where we probably should be wrapping up so that I don't take three or four hours of your time talking about all the wonderful stories um, that emerge out of the book. I will note for listeners, especially those who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, that there's also this really wonderful conclusion in which you're not just wrapping up the book, but also introducing uh, the work of uh, J.W. Dunn and his book, An Experiment with Time, as a way to think through the stages of relativity's enrollment in the popular culture um, that you present to us in the book. So, Katie, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about? And, and like I mentioned, there's um, an extraordinary number of wonderful characters and stories and themes and concepts in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich work. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover but that you'd like to mention for listeners and readers? Um, well, just but um, just coming back to that, there's this this question of um, the terms on which an encounter between um, maybe two two different areas of authority can happen. So one one authority would be the scientific establishment, and another authority would be popular voices. So there are these multiple authorities that come to to an encounter, and I think that um, that. 
that's often um, a journey that can unfold over quite a long period of time. So um, people, for as I mentioned, were, were unable to have access to relativity or they were told that they couldn't. And then they found that they had ways around that access. But these were on terms that were quite... Um, uh, unfamiliar to those working in science. So I guess my my final point would be about um, conversations across um, different areas of specialism. And I, I'm actually very much in favour of specialism. I think it's important that we develop our own specialist skills, but I'm also in favour of um, ongoing conversations and people taking risks to reach out across across those divisions and um, and people having the patience as they have done with me and my project to to listen to people who are coming from somewhere somewhere different so that would be my um, my final comment really that's excellent so now that the book is out and congratulations um, it's it's as I've mentioned before it's a really engaging very rich book what's next for you or what project or projects are currently inspiring you at the moment well, I've um, been pursuing J.W. Dunn and his experiment with time, and I'm actually quite excited because I've found a stash of letters that were written in the 1960s of people giving their accounts of precognitive dreams they'd had, so dreams that then subsequently um, occurred in their waking life. Um, so I'm using this archive of about 1,400 letters um, as the basis for a social history of precognitive dreaming. And um, it's it's such a find because um, you so rarely get to hear what, what, what people who are not famous and people who are not published um, think about science and about um, ideas that are in circulating in culture. Um, so... I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted. That's a wonderful project, and I can't wait to read that one as well. So best of luck with that. Thank you again, Katie, for taking the time to speak with us today, and congratulations again on a wonderful book. Thank you very much, Carla. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.